Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. It was late May in 1996, and Angie was excited. She was a young 18-year-old independent woman striking out on her own for the first time, leaving home and moving into her first apartment. Summer in Idaho Falls had just gotten started. It was a church community where neighbors knew each other, and people rarely locked the doors. The sun was out, and its rays dappling through the green leaves and casting warm shadows on the ground below. Angie worked at Beauty for All Seasons. She was a social butterfly and outgoing. On June 12th, Angie stopped by her mom's house in the evening. It was the first time in weeks they'd seen each other. She had three older brothers and was the only daughter. The two women sat on the couch in the living room and talked about their jobs. Carol told the South Idaho Press that Angie said, Mom, I've done something really stupid, and that she wanted to leave town the next day. Angie was fiercely independent, and Carol didn't want to intrude, so she didn't ask what was wrong. She knew Angie wasn't into drugs and thought perhaps someone thought she was going to tell on them and that they'd threatened her. Angie hugged her mom and headed to her car, and as she was leaving, Carol said, I love you, baby. The next day, Carol's life changed forever. When Angie didn't show up for work, her co-workers were concerned. One of them went to her new apartment and noticed her car was parked in the driveway and her apartment door was unlocked. She gingerly walked inside and looked around. There was blood everywhere. In the bedroom, she found Angie, dead on the floor. She had been stabbed and cut 14 times. Her jugular vein had been severed. At 11 a.m., 911 received the call. Officers arrived on the scene within 15 minutes, and soon after, homicide detectives arrived. They surveyed the crime scene. Her body lay on the floor. Her shirt was soaked in blood. Her sweatpants pulled down in a puddle around her ankles. A blanket piled at her feet. Her blood was splattered around the walls and on the carpet. The knife wound on her neck had nearly decapitated her, and semen was visible on her bare leg. At 11.30 a.m., Carol called her daughter at work to invite her to lunch. And she usually answered the phone, but this morning it was ringing forever. Finally, someone answered the phone, and when she asked for Angie, they passed the phone to a co-worker. Carol was told, Angie's been found dead. You need to go to the police station. Carol's head was reeling. Her mind was screaming, God, no, God, no. She went to the Idaho Falls Law Enforcement Building, where two police captains told her it was true. Angie was gone. Crime scene investigators descended on Angie's apartment. It appeared there had been a small struggle. There was no forced entry, 
And although investigators believe many people had been in Angie's apartment when she was killed, they found no evidence, not even fingerprints. There were messages on her answering machine, and her journal and planner were full of notes. Officers called a state forensic expert for help in the case and made 20 trips to Angie's apartment to photograph and collect evidence. In the days following Angie's murder, Carol visited the police department almost daily, asking if they had any new information on Angie's murder. Eight weeks later, police received the lab results. Although they had DNA, CODIS hadn't been developed yet, and toxicology tests showed no drugs or alcohol in her system. Police believe Angie was killed during a sexual assault and that the murder had not been premeditated. They did old-fashioned police work and knocked on every door surrounding Angie's apartment. They conducted over 200 formal interviews and two experts composed criminal profiles of the killer. December 21st was Angie's 19th birthday. In the last six months, only about 40 tips came into Crime Stoppers. Carol had taken on investigating her daughter's death herself. She put up posters, distributed 2,500 flyers offering a $5,000 reward. The Times News in Idaho reported that most days she stayed up until 4 a.m. driving her pickup truck around Idaho Falls. She'd go to the Greenbelt where Angie used to cruise with friends and asked if any of them knew anything. She even listened to psychics who told her they had visions of Angie. When Angie was seven, she was given a stuffed pink pig. Carol slept with that stuffed pig every night for a year. In early January 1997, South Idaho Press reported that police had learned of a young man who was with a group of people that had been seen with Angie the night before she died. His name was Christopher Tapp. He went by the name of Chris, had a drug problem, and had spent months in treatment for heroin and meth addictions. On January 7th, he voluntarily agreed to questioning by police, and again three days later. After that interview, his parents retained a lawyer. The next day, police arrested him on a charge of accessory to a felony. Police videotaped their interviews with Chris. In the beginning, he told them that he didn't know anything about Angie's murder and denied being in her apartment. But they kept pushing him, suggesting what happened based on their own theories. They threatened him with execution, then false promises of leniency if he admitted to the murder. Then they promised him full immunity with no jail time if he'd tell them the truth as long as he hadn't participated in her murder. With this immunity, the charges against Chris were dismissed and he was released from prison. The very next day, he was interviewed again. Eventually, over the next 12 days, Chris, a young man in his early 20s, just wanted the questions to stop and began telling police what they wanted to hear. But he wasn't basing it on what he did but rather what police suggested happened. The story that evolved wasn't pretty. He told investigators that Angie had let him and two other men into her apartment that night. One of the men was Benjamin Hobbs. 
He initially told police a third man was named Mike. However, court records indicated that Chris named the third man as Jeremy Sargis and that the knife belonged to him. He claimed that Benjamin wanted to confront Angie because he believed that she'd convinced his wife to leave him. Benjamin punched Angie, then stabbed her twice. A few weeks after the murder, Benjamin left Idaho Falls and moved to Nevada. Over 23 days, police spent more than 30 hours interrogating Chris. On January 29th, police interviewed him again, and he was given another polygraph test. This time, he asked to be taken to Angie's apartment. His lawyer agreed to it, but for some unknown reason, declined to go. While at the apartment, Chris admitted to police that he'd held Angie's arms and shoulders down throughout the rape and stabbing. This time, Jeremy's name was replaced by someone else that he couldn't remember. The next day, police rearrested Chris and charged him again with an accessory to a felony charge and held him on a $100,000 bond. But there was a catch. Chris's DNA did not match the evidence found at the crime scene. So needing more evidence linking Chris to Angie's death, police leaned heavily on 18-year-old Jeremy. But he invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, and he was arrested and charged with being an accessory to a felony. In all, police administered seven polygraph tests to Chris. All of them were recorded. A few days later, and eight months after Angie's death, police upgraded Chris's charge to first-degree murder and rape. He was held in the county jail without bail. When police investigated Benjamin, they found out he was already in prison in Nevada. They went to the Eli State Prison and interviewed him three times. But Benjamin wasn't a match to the DNA. Although prosecutors had no physical evidence against Chris, and police believed there had been many people present when she was killed, and that someone else had actually killed Angie, it was determined that Chris was going to trial. A sergeant with the sheriff's office testified that Chris's description of events fits the crime scene and autopsy report. However, Chris's attorney, Robert Booker, argued that the things Chris told police do not match the physical evidence in the case, and that the real killer is still out there, and everyone involved with the case knows it. But a jury didn't agree, and in May 1998, found Chris guilty of first-degree murder, rape, and using a deadly weapon. He was only 22, a convicted murderer and rapist. Prosecutors were seeking the death penalty, and on December 11th, Chris stood before a judge and was sentenced to life in prison, plus 15 years with a minimum of 30 years for Angie's murder, and 20 years for her rape, with a minimum of 10 years to be served. Both sentences would be served concurrently. He would not be eligible for parole until 2027. In 2001, prosecutors allowed the charges against Jeremy for accessory to a felony to expire. Police spent thousands running evidence from Angie's death through the FBI's CODIS database in 2001, but they still had no match. 
Chris's lawyer appealed the guilty verdict based on the fact that his constitutional rights had been violated when police interviewed him. His lawyer had been present in the building and watched on a video monitor, but he was not in the interrogation room with Chris. Although the appeals court agreed that his rights had been violated in some of the interviews, they ruled that he would have been convicted anyway with the evidence, and in July reached a unanimous decision to uphold the conviction. It had been five years since Angie died, and her mother desperately wanted other agencies to look at her daughter's case. She wanted fresh eyes to look at it, even if it meant nothing new. In 2007, Chris appealed again. He was still insisting that he was not Angie's killer, and Carol agreed. She joined forces with Chris to free him. It might have seemed odd, but we get it. While you want someone to pay the consequences for your loved one's death, it has to be the person who actually murdered them. And Carol didn't believe Chris was that person. After losing two appeals, Chris wrote a letter to the Idaho Innocence Project who advocate for convicted felons who they believe are innocent. An intern looked into the case and didn't think they could help, so they shelved his request. Then in the spring, Greg Hampiken, the director at the Innocence Project, asked a public defender a question he often asked. Is there a case that's bothered you over the years? where you think there's an innocent person that went to jail? When Sarah Thomas answered, she said Chris Tapp. She'd represented him on his first appeal and didn't believe that he was guilty and that Angie's family deserved answers. Greg stated that in 200 cases, this was the first time he'd worked with a convicted criminal and the victim's family, both declaring his innocence. Chris wanted the remaining evidence, such as pubic hair, fibers, and stains from bodily fluids, tested for DNA. In April 2010, the Idaho Court of Appeals reversed part of the 2008 judge's ruling, and Chris's lawyers were going to get a chance to argue for a new trial. And remember those seven polygraph tests that Chris had taken? No one had bothered to look at them, because they're not admissible in court. And now that Chris's team of lawyers and judges were watching them, it was obvious that rules had been broken and that he'd been threatened and coerced. He was a young man who didn't know his rights and didn't know he didn't have to talk to police. Meanwhile, genetic information began becoming available to the public through companies like Ancestry.com or 23andMe. Anyone can buy a kit for a couple hundred bucks been into a tube and submit it to get information on their family history. DNA samples are examined for 13 distinct locations. A match at a location will pair that person to someone who shares the same match. The Santa Maria Times reported that in 2014, police investigators decided to use a genetic company to see if they could get a hit. They sent a DNA sample to Ancestry.com. A close match was found. Not an exact match, but close. Police obtained a warrant and learned that the match is from Michael Usry Sr. Ten years earlier, he had provided a sample, thinking he was helping further his church's interest in genetic research. 
His age at the time of Angie's death did not match their suspect profile, but his son did. Police went to New Orleans and knocked on Michael Usry Jr.'s door, armed with a search warrant for his DNA. They interrogated him for six hours. He denied killing Angie. They looked into his background and discovered that he had been in Idaho at the time Angie was killed and that he was a filmmaker and one of his films was about the murder of a woman who had been stabbed to death. Was it an eerie coincidence? But when lab results came back, his DNA was not a match. In 2016, Chris again appealed his conviction for the fourth time. This appeal focused on the videos of three of the polygraph sessions that had never been turned over to Chris's lawyers, and they argued that if they had been, they may have convinced a jury he was innocent. In March 2017, lawyers for the prosecution and defense reached a deal that would release Chris from prison. As part of the deal, Chris wouldn't admit guilt, but he also wouldn't have his murder conviction vacated. Chris walked out of prison on March 22nd. He was no longer inmate 56264. He was now 44 years old. Carol had continued her fight for the truth and had done a lot of research about genealogy and new technologies. Then she found a new ally in Idaho's new police chief, Bryce Johnson, who was also interested in it. Cece Moore is fascinated with genealogy, and she's good at it. She's not a scientist, but her expertise in research and mapping out family trees landed her a position at Parabon Nanolabs where they deal with DNA utilizing advanced forensic tools. DNA from the crime scene was sent to GEDmatch. Then based on those results, Cece went to work creating a family tree. It wasn't easy. Her research first led her to six men in the Drip family. They all submitted DNA, but none were a match. She then went back to her research and kept digging and discovered a seventh man. Finding an obscure little obituary for his grandmother that mentioned his mother had divorced soon after his birth. She had found 53-year-old Brian Drip Sr., who lived about 300 miles from Idaho Falls. Now that police knew who he was, they needed to obtain his DNA. The Post Register describes a hunt for Brian on May 10, 2019. For four hours, Idaho Falls police detectives followed him, waiting for him to discard a sample. Eventually, he threw out a cigarette butt while he was driving. The detectives stopped their car and waited for Brian to drive away. Then they got out and, dodging cars, they played a game of Frogger. But by the time they got out to the road where the butt had been thrown, it was surrounded by other butts. Can you believe it? For all times for there to be litter. Detectives had to start their wait over. How long would it be before he threw another butt out the window? Hours? Days? It turned out to be hours, and this time, detectives got the butt. Lab tests confirmed the DNA on the cigarette butt was a match and police arrested Brian on May 15th. 
It was almost 23 years since Angie had been brutally murdered. After questioning him for five and a half hours, he confessed to both the rape and the murder. He had lived across the street from Angie and knew her as an acquaintance and claimed that he was alone when he entered her apartment, had an only plan to rape her, but that he held a knife to her throat during the rape and accidentally cut her throat. He then told detectives that afterwards, gloves were covered in blood, so he washed them in the bathroom sink, and that he thought she was still alive when he left. He then returned to his apartment. Brian was taken to a county jail and held without bail. It would turn out that Brian was one of the 200 people police had questioned early after her murder, but wasn't considered a suspect. After his arrest, Carol told the East Idaho News that a month earlier when she was meditating, she said, I can't do this anymore, Angie. I've gone as far as I can go. But that she felt Angie was there saying, You're almost there, Mom. On September 9th, Brian pled not guilty. A date for his trial has been set for June 8th, 2021. Carol still wants to know why he killed Angie. There are around 200,000 unsolved cases in the United States, and to date Parabon with CC have solved 56 of those cases. For those serious true crime fans, you can watch CC in the Genetic Detective series on ABC. Definitely one of my fave new shows. Angie's older brother Brent has stood by his mother's side throughout the years in her fight for justice and started a GoFundMe called Five for Hope to raise money for genealogy tests to help solve cold cases. He said it's to convict the guilty and free the innocent. Carol describes genealogy as the key that opens a door to justice. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Keith Evans in Georgia. On a dark, lonely highway, three men ran a state's witness off the road. They shot and beat him to death before burying him in a shallow grave. Police arrived to find the truck on fire and the killer's calling card. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or MurderIn20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.